The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three, two, one. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Into the Impossible podcast, production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at UC San Diego. And it's a treat to welcome uh, Sir Roger Penrose back to UC San Diego. It's a pleasure, certainly, yes. Yeah, we're uh, certainly... Great to be back. <laughs> Thank you. We're extracting a lot out of you in this visit. Uh, we are uh, grateful to you for hosting, uh, to be hosting these uh, many talks that you're giving. You gave one talk that was uh, more than standing room only earlier today. Uh, you're doing this interview now, and tomorrow you're giving another talk. Uh, it's really quite generous. Thank you so much. And I've come to expect that of you. You're gracious, as, as always, and, and so responsive. And it couldn't be a greater treat to have you affiliated with our fine university. Um, when I was mentioning to some of my uh, followers online that you were coming, I wanted to uh, to highlight that this is actually the fifth decade of this book here, The Emperor's New Mind, uh, which is, uh, as I pointed out, was the first popular, so to speak, science book that I ever read as a as a teenager in 1989 when it when it first came out, mm -hmm. and uh, I've been remarking along with my friends on how much has changed, but also how little has changed. And I thought we'd take this opportunity on the fifth decade of its, of its existence on planet Earth to kind of review some of the uh, discoveries that you've had and that science has progressed since the writing of the book. I know it had a second edition and other editions since this first edition that I have here. Um, but I wanted to get a, a general impression from you. Is it, is, did this book exceed your expectations? Did, what, did, it, did it sort of touch a nerve in the popular consciousness that it's still a bestseller to this very day for you? I'm not sure. I initially thought that it might either disappear without trace, <laughs> or that maybe there would be a little attention to pay, pay to it. Well, it was around about the same time as Stephen Hawking had written his book, yes. the, A Brief History of Time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember asking, or <clears throat> noting that, that his book had been, had a foreword written by Oh, Science oh, uh, Carl, Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan. Yes. That's right. Carl yes. Sagan. Mm -hmm. yes. And uh, so I thought, well, I better try and do something. That <laughs> <laughs> and the best I could do, I thought, well, I thought I happened to know Martin Gardner. So I, right. So I thought um, if he wrote a decent forward or if he was prepared to do it. First of all, I wasn't at all sure whether he'd be shocked by the point of view I was presenting. Right. <clears throat> In fact, he was very favorable, favorable expressed. He said he'd rather thought of things the same way. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a very nice forward. And then I thought, well, perhaps it won't disappear without trace. At least some people will read it. Mm -hmm. uh, I was very naive, and I didn't expect this sort of... Mixed is the wrong word. There was a lot of antagonism mm -hmm. from certain quarters. Mm -hmm. I mean, I expected there might be people who would object to what I'd written from the artificial intelligence community because I was trying to say there was a bit more than um, computation going on in, in human thinking and also that I might have trouble with the religious community because I was certainly not expressing a religious view and I was trying to you know, go against that somewhat well not general religious but, but somehow that there was something outside science which had to explain uh, conscious beings and so on what I hadn't expected was a lot of philosophers objected to what I was saying too <laughs> I think they just thought I was too sloppy mm -hmm. 
I was sort of expecting that there would be a lot of young people picking up on the ideas and maybe writing to me or something. My initial experience was nothing of the sort. They were only old retired people who wrote to me. <laughs> and they were old retired people who had time to read the book, I guess. And amongst the people, not just the retired older, and a few young people there were, usually people who got inspired by the book, one in particular who became the... Um, there was a man named Michael, Michael Wills who had, wrote a... He was intending to have a series of television programs on, based on the book. It ended up being one program. Mm -hmm. But he had, as a researcher, <clears throat> somebody who was uh, doing the work. And then he sort of gave up half the way through. And I thought maybe that had a row or something. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, actually, he'd become interested in something else. And uh, he actually turned out... He, became a singer, and he became the, lead, the leading singer in Britain. Oh, really? uh, tenor, tenor singer, yes. Really? So I didn't mind him. He, he was like the, one of the people who, one of the few people as a youngster who had written to me about the book. So well, That's a decent excuse. To... Yes, but one of the main things that I guess was a positive aspect of this was that Stuart Hammeroff read my book. Right. And uh, he more or less wrote to me to say, well, the one thing that seems to be missing from your point of view was these things called microtubules. Mm -hmm. You see, I'd written the book feeling, you know, quite... Uh, uh, I, I knew a bit about physics and mathematics, and I would try and learn a bit about neurophysiology, and maybe I'll find enough about it to see where my ideas had any relevance to that. And I got to the end, and I came to the conclusion I didn't see any relevance, <laughs> mainly that nerve propagation... You see, I need to have preserve... And some kind of quantum coherence. Mm -hmm. And I just learned that nerve propagation wasn't, there's no hope. <laughs> that the signals, there's a, always big electric fields which would de decohere, you, the, all your quantum coherence get lost in the rest of the brain, and it was completely hopeless. So I sort of had a rather feeble ending, which didn't, <laughs> I didn't really believe in myself. But Stuart wrote to me and said, you, I think the key thing you're missing is these things called microtubules. Mm -hmm. Now, I never heard of microtubules, and I get lots of letters and email. well, emails didn't exist in those right. days, but letters from people, crackpots of one yes. kind or another. <laughs> so I thought, oh, here's another, you see. <laughs> and I thought, these things, look, he's got a picture of these things. It looks like they must be real. So I look at them up, and I say, yeah, they're real, all right. And, and it seemed to me these were structures far, for, far, far more pro probable, plausible mm -hmm. things which could preserve quantum coherence. I mean, it's still a challenge, a major challenge. Mm -hmm. But the kind of, the fact that they were tubes and the fact that they were symmetrical in various ways and and it looked to me there was a bit, much, much better chance there. So it sort of started a collaboration with Stuart mm -hmm. and uh, we formulated this general point of view called orchestrated oh, objective reduction. Mm -hmm. Objective reduction is something I treated in the book. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> But although that's one of the things I think the exact form I had was not correct. Hmm. There are a few things I would say were wrong in the book. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but not majorly wrong. That is to say, it wasn't the right criterion, but it was the sort of idea which I still believe in, namely that it's gravitation, which is the place you have to look for where quantum mechanics... It needs something uh, to make it consistent. The theory we have at the moment is a com combination of two things which mutually, mutually contradict each other. And people sort of live with that and try to live with it and make sense of it. 
but they don't normally take the view there's something wrong, <laughs> which was the view I took, and which I still hold. Mm -hmm. And it's really the second book, which was Shadows of the Mind, where I more or less uh, well, I introduced the microtubules there and the point of view which I still believe in mm -hmm. with regard to the how to fix up quantum mechanics. And that the uh, that the microtubules have sort of a geometric. <clears throat> connection to them or sort of a natural geometry to them is no surprise that appeals to your deep love of geometry. Uh, but is there something deeper to it other than yes. they're just their geometric structure? Well, I think there is. Mm -hmm. um, although it's not been made use of very much in the later developments. I mean, it's already there. That is, these structures that are... Well, actually, microtubules come in two forms. They're two different lattices. I didn't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. One of them are what's called the A lattice, which is highly symmetrical. And the other is the B lattice, which is not quite so symmetrical. It's got a seam down one edge mm -hmm. along the tube. Whereas the ones which are highly symmetrical seem to me have a much better prospect of uh, preserving quantum coherence. So you want quantum effects to be preserved at a, a big level. Mm -hmm. And symmetry is a good way to do that. Mm -hmm. So when you say the geometrical structure, that's part of it which is appealing to me. And there is this thing called the Jan-Teller effect. Mm. This is when you have a highly symmetrical structure. Well, maybe a, it could be a, a crystal-like thing, mm -hmm. or it could be like a tube with different kinds of symmetries. And the high symmetry means that you can have well, there's a sort of lowest level of activity, which is the sort of lowest quantum level, and that is what's called degenerate. So you have information at that level, or it's called quantum information at that level, which is shielded from the next level. So there's a big gap between that level and the next. And you get that when you have very symmetrical structures. Mm -hmm. And the microtubules... a band gap. Like a band gap. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. a band gap. <clears throat> microtubules... I mean, there's a lot of other problems mm -hmm. which it simply doesn't resolve just like that. Mm -hmm. But it gave. It seemed to me there was a lot of much, much more promise mm -hmm. in microtubules than anything else I'd seen before in uh, in neurophysiology. So one thing that distinguishes your research it's not without its speculations and and sure. uh, new and, and novel ideas, but that. In almost every case that I've found in your research, you predict effects which are, in principle, possible to prove wrong. In other words, they are possible to be falsified. Yeah. Um, you know, to date, you've enjoyed success, and that they haven't been false. Many things have not been falsified, and in fact, many of your uh, discoveries have been have stood this test of time and test of other experimental and mathematical uh, scrutiny. Um, is that something that's important to you? Obviously, you you know of the and our listeners will know of you know Popper, Karl Popper. <clears throat> and his uh, his sort of um, uh, you know objectivist and and how do we how do we determine if something is scientific? Well, it must be falsifiable. And oh, yes. and, and, and and I always point out that um, I believe, and you talk about Gödel and his incompleteness theorem very um, frequently in the Emperor's New Mind. Um, but I feel like physicists almost have an envy of Gödel's incompleteness theorem, and that and <laughs> that we have no way of of objectively showing that our assumptions are 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 built upon perhaps in in you know incompatible uh, premises or un, unprovable or unfalsifiable uh, axioms, and I wonder you know 
to what extent do you are you guided by Popper and the falsification demarcation theory? Is that something that's important to you? Would you work on something that is not? Because it could be tomorrow our colleagues find that microtubules are just <laughs> impossible to be, you know, they, they can't maintain coherence beyond, you know, nanosecond level timescale, something like that. Well, you see, I, I think your point is, is well taken. But there is a major part of what I've done in relation to physics and how it relates to mathematics, which at least as yet has not been falsifiable. Yeah. And, you know, I rather regret the fact that it's not. <laughs> this right. is the theory which I refer to as Twister theory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, it's very much <clears throat> motivated by relativity facts and uh, curious things like the, the nature of the celestial sphere. Mm -hmm. You think of the sky, and that's a sphere. And the structure of that sky is what's called a conformal structure. Mm -hmm. And this is a thing I got interested in very early, that if you imagine two space travelers getting very, passing each other very close, and they look at the same sky, but they're traveling at almost very close to the speed of light, one with respect Relative. to the other. And they look up at the same sky, and there's a distortion of the sky they see. The stars are slightly different spots and so on. There's a thing called aberration, mm -hmm. which has to do with the motion. But it has a very curious feature that it preserves angles. Mm -hmm. That is to say, if you, if you imagined an angle in the sky, if two, three stars close together and at a certain mm -hmm. angle, that the other observer would see the same angle. So it's what the transformation of one observer to the sky to the other is what's called conformal. And this is a kind of geometry which I got very interested in, uh, called conformal geometry. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know about Euclidean geometry, but mm -hmm. that's to do with lengths. Mm -hmm. But this is to do with angles. And it's a much richer geometry. And the fact that it applies to the sky is an indication of something in a completely different subject. The, you might say the two big revolutions of 20th century physics. One is relativity, and here we see in special relativity. It doesn't work in Newtonian theory. Right. Relativity, the, ang the conformal nature of the transformation of the sky. But the other is in quantum mechanics. And you have these complex numbers which are all intimately related to this conformal structure. And they play a big role when you think about spins of particles. And again, you get this same sphere, which is a conformal sphere, playing a fundamental role in physics. And this has to do with the complex numbers, which involve the square root of minus one, sort of mysterious numbers, which are at the basis of quantum mechanics. And so I kind of thought of this as a link between relativity and quantum mechanics. And Twister theory, I won't go into it here, mm -hmm. but it's it's a... Mathematical formalism, it has particular features. One of them is you have to have three space dimensions and one time dimension. So when I was being confronted with things like string theory, I quite liked the idea <coughs> when strings were initially put forward. Mm -hmm. But when they seemed to consider you needed to have 26 dimensions of space-time mm -hmm. or 10 dimensions or both together in some curious way, mm -hmm. it didn't <laughs> appeal to me at all because the link between the quantum mechanics and, uh, and relativity, which is through this conformal sphere, only works when you have three space dimensions and one time dimension. And so the theory which I developed, which I call twister theory, was based upon this very specific structure, and it doesn't work in other numbers of dimensions. Well, you can start doing it in other dimensions, it doesn't really work.
And it took me years and years to try and make it work with general relativity. And only relatively recently did I see how these things fit together and with quantum mechanics. And curious feature is that it needs to have this was a big blow to me initially, the cosmological constant. <laughs> See, this was this in number introduced by Einstein in 1917 for the wrong reason. You see, he wanted a static universe. He liked a universe which was sort of spherical in space, sort of closed up on itself, and sort of sat there forever. And this was just about at the time when people were becoming convinced that the universe was expanding. But Einstein introduced this cosmological constant term, usually called lambda, like a V upside down. Mm -hmm. And this was, as soon as he was convinced that the universe was actually expanding and this model doesn't work, he sort of retracted this cosmological term and regarded it as his greatest blunder. Now, you see, all the cosmology books were sort of, oh, Einstein says this number has to be there, and so they all consider the cosmological constant and so on. So, and I, sort of like everybody else, a lot, a lot of people thought, well, it shouldn't really be there. It's much nicer not having it there. And my trying to solve a big problem in Twister theory, I thought I needed it to be zero. And I remember having this conversation with, uh, with Jerry Ostriker. And I was saying, do we really have to believe from these... Supernova, distant supernova. They were observations of distant, exploding stars, supernovae. Right. That there seemed to be evidence for this expansion, exponential expansion of the universe over and beyond the expansion that we already thought was consistent with the Einstein equations, and that seemed to indicate that there was this cosmological constant that Einstein had regarded as his biggest blunder. <laughs> it had to be there. It had to be positive. Mm -hmm. And I said to Jerry, I said, well, do we really have to believe that? I mean, because perhaps it's just dust out there, <laughs> as many people said. That's and right. he looked at me and said, look, all. that's not the point. There are so many things in cosmology that are much better understood. They work so much better with this cosmological term. And I thought, okay, I'll give it. I'm prepared to give it up, what you say. <laughs> so it was a good thing because... The later views that I had absolutely depend on having this cosmological constant. Mm -hmm. It has to be positive. It has to be there. We have to see this exponential expansion. And if it hadn't been for Jerry convincing me it was there, mm -hmm. I'd have been still going down the wrong route that <laughs> I was going down before. Yeah, no, we say, you know, Einstein's biggest blunder turned out to be that he called it a blunder. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Actually. But I guess he wasn't right in the way he was using it. That's right. But it was... Uh, I mean, it was a great insight because well, it's basically the only thing you could do to his equations without wrecking them. Yeah. And, and he knew you could do that. And he had great confidence in the equations. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Especially yes. as uh, yes. after the 1919 <laughs> Eddington eclipse. That's right. Um, yes. So in the book, one, one thing that helped me as a young, you know, uh, scientifically, mathematically inclined uh, young person when I read this in 1989 was um, the way that you very carefully lay out your your opinions, but in a very even-handed fashion as to different theories of math and physics and, and, and you kind of give a rank ordering to them, which you, which you talk about. And I want to revisit that on this, you know, fifth decade. So the categories I have in here are yes. tentative, yes. useful, and superb. Yeah. And one of the most amazing things you do is you start off with Euclid and you say Euclid, Euclidean geometry is actually in, was in your uh, characterization, a physical theory. And I wonder if you can yes. talk more about that. You and seem I to regard be it superb. As yeah, as I mean. and yeah, it is superb, according yes, to you. Yeah, so can you well, comment it works on that? How so is it extraordinarily well? Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess uh, 
It's an interesting question how the ancients looked at it. Um, I mean, the, the ideas of Euclidean geometry were, were sort of based on angles and lengths and triangles, and sort of the view that a big triangle and a little triangle, the same geometry applied. If you had a really huge triangle, and if you added up its angles, it would still add up to 180 degrees. And, uh, and people tried, to, there was a big activity where this, um, I forget his name now, this chap who tried to prove that the angles had to add up. I mean, it, they, Euclid realized that there was a puzzle here, mm -hmm. that you needed to have a special assumption which it was the parallel postulate, right. usually phrased in terms of if you have a line in a plane and a point in that plane which is not on the line, then there is only exactly one line, straight line, mm -hmm. through that point which didn't meet the other line. Mm -hmm. And and it was thought that somehow you should be able to deduce that from the others. I mean, it was a real insight yeah. for Euclid to see that that was an independent assumption. Right. And uh, And it took not just the ancients, but many people, and they tried to prove it, and Sakeri and spent his entire life trying to prove it, and at the end, more or less discovered what's called hyperbolic geometry, mm -hmm. and there were other people who, uh, what was his name? Lobachevsky. Lambert was somebody Lam who proved beautiful theorems, which had to depend on this other kind of geometry that people didn't think existed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and about how you add up the angles of the triangle and how much they fall short of 180 degrees as a measure of the angle of the triangle, mm -hmm. area of the triangle. Right. An amazing thing. And how could you prove a thing like when, when it, you don't believe that, that there is any other geometry? Right. I don't know. I'm very interested to know what, what Lambert's psyche was here. <laughs> I think he probably at certain times of his life thought there was a, that it was consistent to have different times of geometry. Mm -hmm. And other types he probably thought it was absurd. <laughs> <laughs> but you had to catch the types times when he thought it was consistent because he had this beautiful theorem in it. But uh, then in, in Gauss, who mm -hmm. more importantly tried to find... Well, it's an interesting question because he, 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 part of his job was to, to do geodesy. Yeah. So he's actually measuring very big triangles. The mountaintops. And, and people are trying to think, oh, well, he's just doing geodesy. And he's, but I think at the back of his mind, he was really trying to see whether the geometry of, was Euclidean or not. Right. Because he knew, he knew that there were other kinds of geometry. Right. And it was really interesting how the history, people kind of toying with, were there other kinds of geometry? But the fact that Euclidean geometry is so precise, and it was sort of laid out as this wonderful theory, which it is, mm -hmm. an amazing theory. And it lasted for goodness knows how many centuries yeah. before people, A, discovered there were other kinds of geometries, and B, with Einstein and, uh, um, well, primarily Einstein, but mm -hmm. realizing that you needed to, uh, in order to describe a physics in which the principle of equivalence, that is, Again, I think a lot of these ideas are ancient, but people didn't know quite what significance was. I mean, right. this was going back to Galileo. It's not just going back to Archimedes and, and going back to uh, Euclid and people. But the fact that gravitational field is equivalent to an acceleration. Mm -hmm. And so Galileo was extremely insightful. And he imagined, you know, dropping these things from the 
in a boat down the tower or whatever it was, right. and they fall together, mm-hmm. and they somehow you can cancel out gravity. Mm-hmm. And there's a wonderful description he has in in one of his books where he talks about fireworks, hmm. and you see the fireworks and they explode. And you see these spheres, beautiful spheres, and they come, they come and they fall, and they remain spheres. Right. And he pointed this out, and there was a deep insight in that. It's just as though there was no gravity, and the acceleration, you, if you're free, freely falling, it's as though there's no gravity. You experience no and gravity. And that's a huge insight, mm-hmm. which had to wait until Einstein mm-hmm. <laughs> to realize the importance of it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that was in the Discorsi, I think, the last book that Galileo wrote. Yes. <clears throat> so I want to read from Emperor's New Mind, yeah. a paragraph that speaks to me to this very day, and I remember being moved by it way back when. He said, Great works of art are indeed closer to God than our lesser ones. It is a feeling not uncommon amongst artists that in their greatest works they are revealing eternal truths which have some kind of prior ethereal existence, while their lesser works may be more arbitrary of nature, more mortal constructions. Likewise, an engineering innovation with a beautiful economy, uh, where a great deal is achieved in the scope of the application of some simple unexpected idea, might appropriately be described as a discovery rather than an invention. Now, this harkens back to whether or not mathematical truths are in yes. some way discovered or invented. Yes, indeed. And I wonder if you can weigh in with your vast experience <laughs> gleaned both before and after this book. And where do you feel, fall now? Well, I certainly haven't changed my view in that particular respect. Mm-hmm. I have in certain others. Yeah, I think the mathematics... Well, it's a platonic view, you would say, that the mathematics has its own world. Mm-hmm. You see, I like to do this with an illustration, which I th- think first had in, in, in Shadows of the Mind, mm-hmm. where I, I had three types of existence, in a sense. And if you're a mathematician, you very strongly get the feeling that it's like a bit like geology or um, archaeology or something. You're exploring a world out right. there. You're discovering... World things which are out there. Mm-hmm. You don't invent the theorems. Mm-hmm. You discover truths which are, in some sense, out there in a world. But it's not the world, the physical world, because the things you find, they, you know, you try to draw a triangle and it's not quite... And how do you draw a straight line mm-hmm. when <laughs> the more you know about the nature of right. matter, you see it's granular in certain respects? Yeah, you're talking here about what is the number three. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very difficult to And to so you, it, when you think mm-hmm. about the mathematics, you really have mm-hmm. to think about it in this platonic way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that you're creating it. I mean, you sometimes do things which are simply sufficiently wild that they look as though you, you've, um, you've made, made it all up. In a certain sense, if it really works beautifully, there's something out there which is out of your control, and it's much more like exploration. Mm-hmm. You can say this is a feeling that one has, but it's more, I think, strong. You see, this is one of the worlds, the world, yeah. the platonic world which, of mathematics, which I sort of draws this sphere at the top mm-hmm. of the picture. And then... A little bit of that world, and it's only a very tiny bit, because if you, you look at any article in, or any journal of pure mathematics, and you will see the articles in there which have any relevance whatsoever to the physical world, right. very, very tiny. Yeah, and they might not have a number in it, right? That's right, and it's a very tiny bit of it, which it, sometimes it turns out later things, and you find, well, and behold, this, this beautiful theorem, which was in that pure mathematical work, and, and now it's found an application. Right. So you see that. But when you think of the whole totality of the mathematical work, that's been done, that's explored, if you like. It's a really tiny part of that world, a very 
um, productive, magical, particularly magical part of that world, which seems to be, and I have it sort of projecting out to the physical world. The laws that we see being extraordinarily precise. Well, I say uh, Euclidean geometry is, even though not, we know now not exactly mirrored in the in the geometry of the physical world, it's a basic ingredient of everything we think about in geometry. Um, so it has a huge impact into 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 physics. Mm -hmm. But then the more we learn about physics, it's governed by equations and geometrical ideas and things and we reduce them to mathematics. And in that mathematics, we can gain enormous precision in the way we describe and understand the way the physical world operates. Now, this is, a, in some sense, the view we have, and this is the view I have, is that this small part of the mathematical world encompasses, in a certain sense, the whole of the physical world. So I draw this in this rather strange way, a little tiny part of the world, the mathematical world, seems to encompass the behavior of this physical world. We seem to, it seems to be when we get our laws right, they really be, it almost as though we reduce them to mathematics. Mm -hmm. You might say, well, what is, a, what is a rock? Well, this rock is made of mo molecules and things like that. And what are the molecules made of? Well, they're made of atoms. What are the atoms made of? Well, they're made of fundamental particles, electrons. and and you worry about the neutrons and protons and then the gluons and things. Mm -hmm. What are they? You say, well, they've what sticks the particles <laughs> together? Are they particles themselves? Well, then you worry about the photons. Well, you have these as they used to be fields, and then you see they're particles. But then you say, what is an electron? Well, <laughs> the best you can do is it's a solution of the Dirac equation. Yeah. You say, well, that's a pretty abstract notion. <laughs> and you kind of have to resort to mathematics when you... Mm -hmm try to probe uh, reality at its mm -hmm. deepest levels. And then there's the next question, you see, which is my third world, which is the world of conscious experience. Mm -hmm. And so the type of view I'm expressing, well, both in The Empress New Mind and Shadows of the Mind, more, more explicitly in, in this picture, is that there's a third world, which is the world of conscious experience. Some people take that as primary, and they try to build everything else out of that. I think that's a pretty hopeless task, mm -hmm. because the, our sensory experiences are very hard to describe any of these other things in a, in a precise way. But nevertheless, that's one. we have different ways of looking at it. But again, it seems to be a very small part of the world of physics, which is actually supports consciousness. So, okay, human beings, sure. I think it's, it extends much more broadly than that. And animals, maybe many animals, but not all animals, I wouldn't know. But certainly, I think the difference between human beings and, and certain animals is, okay, great in certain respects, but not fundamental. Mm -hmm. I just think that people who are dog owners, for example, are pretty convinced their dogs are conscious. <laughs> I think octopuses are conscious. Mm -hmm. Elephants, I would pretty... Way down, though, below that, I think mice conscious, too. I, my, I used to have infestations of mice in the mm -hmm. place I used to live in. And I, you can, I'd admire the cleverness of these little creatures sometimes. <laughs> How they could step over the trap that way quite deliberately and take out all, all the food, food and completely the cleaned out, <laughs> and they hadn't touched the thing which would trip them out. <laughs> I just have a great admiration for the mice. So there's something which goes deep down mm -hmm. into, the, into the world, but it's still a tiny part mm. of this physical world, you know. All and, those 
in the Penrose hierarchy of of um, you know superb, useful, and uh, tentative, where yes. where do you rank? Because obviously geometry is superb, and obviously mathematics is superb. Well, and, mathematics is, I would say, in, you have to spread it out of mm-hmm. all the other. Sure, theories. sure, sure. So yeah. it's not just mathematics is itse- in mm-hmm. itself. But yes. do you feel, in principle, a theory of consciousness? Could be superb. Is it possible for it to be superb, or is it only possible for it to be useful? I think if we get it right, we're a long way from it. What would it look like? What would such I a theory the look like? Idea. <laughs> I, I, all I can say about it in the, the studies of the books I've written is a little chip, hmm. I would say. And the tiny thing I'm trying to say is that consciousness, well, again, it's a little part, consciousness in refers to all sorts of things, you know, pain and mm-hmm. perception of the color blue and mm-hmm. happiness and uh, love and and all sorts of things. Um, I don't talk about most of those things in my book. Mm-hmm. I just talk about the one thing that I could say anything about, which is understanding. And I concentrate on that because there are these theorems of logic, most particularly Gödel's theorem mm-hmm. and Turing's analysis of of it in terms of computation, the ideas of computation and so on, lead me to believe that human understanding is not computable. It's not a computation. Mm-hmm. And the, and a lot of people, that's where a lot of people argued with me because somehow it tells us that an algorithm, you see, we, we have these wonderful computers and what they can do, and they do incredible things, I agree with that. But they run on algorithms. Mm-hmm. And this is what we understand. This notion of an algorithm, which was, well, it really goes back to what well, was Arabic algorithm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but that was Turing and a few other people, posts and church and people, who re- really made clear the idea of what an algorithm is, what a computation mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And the Gödel theorem tells you that our understanding is not a computation. I mean, this is a story which is. You know, a lot of people complain about, but I think the argument is pretty clear that what we do when we understand a proof in mathematics is not following an algorithm. And mm-hmm. it's very clear because of the Gödel thing, right. which says whenever you, what do you mean by a proof? You see, well, a proof is using certain kinds of rules and you have to use them correctly. And if you really think of it as a proof, you've got to believe that those rules only give you true statements. Mm-hmm. Now, it's that thing, the belief that it only gives you true statements, which enables you to demonstrate the truth of a proposition, which Gödel produces very ingeniously, a proposition which you can see must be true. Nevertheless, it cannot be derived by means of whatever rules you start with. As long as you believe those rules only give you truths, Mm -hmm. then you must believe this Gödel statement is also true and not derivable by means of those rules. Now, when I learned that, I was stunned Mm -hmm. by it. You see, it wasn't that you can prove certain things can't derive in certain ways. It's much stronger than that. Saying whatever procedure you use, if it's following definite rules which you believe in, Mm -hmm. which you trust, Mm -hmm. the algorithm which you trust, then you can see how to transcend that. Now, what is it in, in our abilities to think, perceive, conscious perception? That transcends computation. Mm-hmm. Oh, there are lots of arguments people present, and one of these is, well, you know, the algorithm we use in our heads is so complicated that we'll never be able to see what the girdle thing is. Well, yeah, sure. But the point is <clears throat> that 
How did it come about by natural selection? It has to have been by relatively simple things, which we can certainly understand. These co very complicated things, which you can maybe have an hour, a computer which could do things which are pretty hard to see why they're true, because it's very, very elaborate. That's not what was naturally selected for. What was naturally selected for was this more basic principle of an understanding. And that is not a computation. It's something I don't know what it is. Don't mm -hmm. ask me what it is. No. That's the, the so you're real distinguishing challenge. between yes. com computability and actual comprehension. And it's the, the comprehension mm -hmm. of why the algorithm does what it's supposed to do, mm -hmm. and it's not simply trying this and that and that zillion zillion right. of times. Inductively, in a certain sense, I mean, there's <clears> an irony here because, okay, uh, conscious beings came about in a way by natural selections and which is an algorithmic right <laughs> some way of picking out the ones that were more successful but they were successful in the view i hold by probing the laws of physics at a much deeper level than we've seen yet mm -hmm. at this level where we see non-computable action mm. and this has to be still the it was already the argument i gave in the in the emperor's new, new mind but although not quite the right criterion in my view it has to be at this place where we have to go beyond current quantum theory and the argument came about which is what formulated the view basically when I was my I think it was my first year as a graduate student mm. when I went to courses by a man called Steen on mathematical logic mm -hmm. Bondi on general relativity mm -hmm. and Dirac a great quantum mm -hmm. physicist mm -hmm. on quantum mechanics and I tried to see what in the physical world can be not put on a computer, basically. Mm -hmm. And basically, the, my conclusion was it was this curious feature of quantum mechanics where you have a, an inconsistency. It's basically making a measurement. Mm -hmm. You see, quantum theory consists of two parts. One is following an equation, the Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's equation. equation. Mm -hmm. And it just that's a thing you could put on a computer. Unitary evolution. Unitary right, evolution. Smooth. And the other collapse. is where you don't do unitary right. evolution. <laughs> right. You make a measurement, Abandoned you collapse it. the wave function, and you cheat. Mm -hmm. But you have to do that right. to, to have the world we see. Mm -hmm. And so this seemed to me that's the place where the non-computable physics has to come in. I don't see in detail how it comes in. Mm -hmm. And it's a big mystery. Mm -hmm. But my claim is you've got to harness that bit and that somehow the conscious brain is at some point making use of this part of this place. It's not just that it uses quantum mechanics. Many people poo-poo that already. They say, oh, no, it's classical physics. Oh, you don't know where quantum mechanics. No, but we see that's wrong already because in things like uh, photosynthesis and maybe bird migration, there are other places where we seem to see effects which do just depend on crucially on quantum effects. Well, chemistry is already quantum, mm -hmm. but these are things a little bit outside that. Saying like room temperature, yes, you know, short room, coherence, room temp right. preserving mm -hmm. of quantum coherence at mm -hmm. room temperature. Mm -hmm. So, sure, the argument is nature has found a way to do it deep in the in the brain, and much more likely it'll be to do with microtubules, um, and probably how they relate to other structures. And um, so, anything with a microtubule could participate in quantum mechanical measurement? Maybe, even it doesn't mm -hmm. say that much. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are these two structures, the A lattice and the B lattice. Mm -hmm. The A lattice is very symmetrical. Mm -hmm. The B lattice is not so symmetrical. The B lattice is still symmetrical, but not mm -hmm. so much. And most microtubules in the body all over the place are, tend to be B lattice. Mm -hmm. 
the A lattice ones seem to be much more promising for doing things in the brain probably and maybe conscious actions. So the guess is that whatever is really responsible for conscious action is not just microtubules but A lattice microtubules. And there is some theoretical work done by various people which does seem to indicate that. Mm -hmm. That's certainly for the future. I think that's way ahead of what we have at the moment. Are there models, you know, mice or octopi? Or, yeah, I mean, are we able to test in living structures that these things can occur? I mean, uh, Schrodinger cat experiment supervised by an octopus or something <laughs> that the folks at PETA uh, won't well, object to? I think to. going to that level is unlikely for a while, for mm -hmm. a long term. I think it's much more likely probing uh, areas of the brain, not so much areas of the brain, but exactly what's going on when. And there are things, uh, you know, it's outside my area of expertise, but there are sort of waves of activity involving different layers in the brain. And where the conscious activity seems to come in is where there are large numbers of these certain kinds of cells called pyramidal cells. Hmm. I, I'm, I don't know enough about it to know exactly. There is a big question, you see, which people often raise, and that is... There are far more cells, neurons, I only re recently learned it's more, I knew it was comparable, yeah. in this part of the brain called the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. Now the cerebellum is not the people usually, but people you think of, which is part of the time, right. mm -hmm. with the old convolutions and all that. It's a part which looks much more like a ball of knitting mm. underneath and at the back. Mm. It has more neurons, considerably more than there mm. are in the, mm -hmm. and more connections between neurons. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be pretty well unconscious. Mm -hmm. it's, it's activated when you do very precise motions. You know, if you become an expert tennis player or mm -hmm. play the piano beautifully well, you don't think every moment, you know, where do I put my middle finger <laughs> in exactly what spot? That's controlled pretty well by unconscious actions. And the precision needed in these actions are carried out by the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, initially you have to learn about them in the cerebrum part, but when they become unconscious, controlled such, with such unconscious precision that you need at these great levels of expertise, or even when you're walking down the street probably, mm -hmm. certainly when you're driving the car not thinking about it, it's probably controlled by the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't seem to be conscious. Right. What's the difference? Well, I don't know, but Stuart will say... There are no, there are no pyramidal cells in the cerebellum. Hmm. And, and the pyramidal cells have ma many more microtubules in them, and they're organized in a different way from those in the, the cerebellum. Uh -huh. That's the kind of thing one <coughs> could explore more mm -hmm. and see to what extent is it that these structures with more microtubules and more a-lattice microtubules maybe actually seem to be more concerned with conscious thinking. And you can, it's definitely true that some parts of the brain are much, much more to do with consciousness mm -hmm. than others. Well, that's certainly true with the, with the, the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the question is with other parts of the cerebrum. And on a, on a practical level, I'm curious to get your perspective on recent developments in things like quantum computing. You, you t very presciently talked in this book about not only chess, and this is before Deep Blue it defeated yes. Gary Kasparov, but you, you talked about the game Go, which is uh, which was recently Google's uh, version of the yes. Go playing algorithm beat it, uh, the best human yes. human being. Yes. Uh, you talked about all these things in the late 80s. It's really it's really amusing to look back uh, at the other things. You talked about quantum teleportation. There's a charming 
uh, oh, yeah, chapter where you talk about you know taking the molecules of a brick and and replacing them and is it the same brick and then you say well, what's the difference between a brick and your brain uh, yeah, and so. could you do these things you know to this so I'm interested with all the technological developments in quantum computing that we've recently achieved quantum supremacy and and things like that what's your uh, from the standpoint of the long view of, of history how important is this era in modern in modern times, how will you feel like it will be regarded in the future? Was this a critical it's, time, or is it? It's very hard for me to judge at the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly the quantum computers that they have now, and they've made a lot of progress, are not like the ones that were being considered before, where you might have something like a classical computer, but mm-hmm. then you've sort of introduced quantum superpositions and mm-hmm. calculations, and so on. they're basically a different kind of. Structure and they're not, as far as I know, really universal machines. Mm-hmm. See, one of the wonderful things about ordinary computers, if I can call them ordinary, mm-hmm. is that depending on this notion developed by Turing and Church and Posts and Gödel and people of computability mm-hmm. being a universal concept, mm-hmm. so you can build up through very simple ingredients a machine which can, in principle, do any computation. Mm-hmm. Now, this is this, these ideas are developed into, of course, lots of ingenious ideas go into it, but the modern computers are basically universal computing machines. Mm-hmm. So any kind of algorithm you can put on the computer. Mm-hmm. Now, with the quantum machines, it's really a very small number of problems. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're very specific ones that they can right. do very well. Simulate Hamiltonians. Not, and, right. yeah, mm-hmm. As far as I'm aware, they're not really general-purpose machines. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not really quite at mm-hmm. that level. Maybe you, they will become, mm-hmm. and maybe there will be a point. Which, you see, I sometimes comment on this. See, in the old days, people used to say, well, you get better computers. This is before the quantum computers. Right. You get better, better machines, the smaller you make them. So you can get smaller and smaller chips, and then they become smaller and smaller and smaller, and they're much more effective, and you get more power out of the machine. And then there's a certain limit, because at a certain point, you run into the problems of quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. So they would say the quantum limits, you see. That, mm-hmm. that'll, that'll stick us up at some point. Well, then, of course, people say, no, well... Once you know what's going on at the quantum level, you can actually harness the quantum level. And so you have this idea of a quantum computer, which enables you to transcend, at least to some degree, what you can do with a classical machine. And so maybe something similar might come later on. Where people say, well, there's a certain level, a limit to what you can do with your quantum machines, because it's, if you have too much mass moving around, then you're going to run into the limit where the quantum mechanics doesn't hold and you've got to go beyond it and so there will be a, a limit there mm-hmm. the state reduction limit of quantum computers mm-hmm. and then maybe somebody say, well we've got maybe by then <laughs> some great theory which tells you which goes beyond standard quantum mechanics and then maybe you can do con- construct a device which goes beyond it by taking advantage of this theory. i think i'm gonna i'm glad i won't be alive by then because <laughs> i <laughs> I think if these things do come about, I'm a little bit worried about what may yeah. be done with them. Yeah, I wish you a long life. I wish that, <laughs> not, that that's the only thing I disagree with you. I don't I don't want you to not to to leave the mortal <laughs> coil too soon because I I want to see. And actually, that segues maybe to perhaps to my final question, <clears throat> which um, has to do with all these various. Um, novel ideas that you've had and perhaps no other certainly no other modern physicist has had con- contributions as diverse as cosmology as consciousness as uh, twister theory as uh, the, the talking uh, computation and artificial intelligence 
if you could ask, you know, as Einstein used to call him, the old one, God, if you could, <laughs> if you could get the answer to one of these, you know, many topics that you've, that you've researched, yeah. you know, throughout your life, throughout your very productive career, which is the thing that most fascinates you? Which is the thing that most captivates your, your imagination? Well, you see, it's a difficult question because <clears throat> at the moment, the thing which excites me most is the cosmology. Mm-hmm. But there, you see, it excites me because... You see, I have a certain uh, wild idea, which I think may well be true, and most standard cosmologists don't believe me, you see. <laughs> but there are bits of evidence we're beginning to see which do suggest that maybe there is some truth in this model. And you're speaking about the, just for I'm the listeners, co- you're speaking about the conformal, the conformal cyclic cyclic model, cosmology. Which says that the Big Bang was not really the beginning. Mm-hmm. It was the conformal continuation <laughs> I talked about the conformal geometry where big and small mm-hmm. you're not interested in, you're interested in size. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to say is in the Big Bang, because the energies are so big and the particles become effectively massless, they can't tell big from small. Mm-hmm. So at that stage, there's the kind of geometry doesn't know big from small is important. The other place where you can't tell big from small is an extremely remote future where the universe expands and expands exponentially and you mostly photons running around and they don't know big from small. And you've got the black holes and then they eventually evaporate away by hawking evaporation. Mm-hmm. And then you've got nothing left that doesn't... It's not quite true. You have to be <laughs> careful about that. But roughly speaking, the idea is that this very remote future, it doesn't know big from small either. Mm-hmm. So the crazy idea is that this very remote future joins on to the Big Bang of a next eon. Mm-hmm. And our Big Bang was the conformally squashed remote future of a previous eon. Now, it's a completely wild idea because mm-hmm. one tends to think, well, why, you know, how does this very does know, right? stretched mm-hmm. out, very rarefied, very cold infinite remote future of a, an eon simply become the very concentrated, extremely hot and dense um, next Big Bang. Right. Well, the thing is, because the geometry there is the conformal one, the big and smaller equivalent. Okay, you take people a lot of convincing to make sure yeah. that they believe this. But the claim is that we're making is that there are certain signals which you can, which do get through. And the first ones we were thinking were supermassive black holes running into each other and producing huge bursts of gravitational radiation, which would give you signals which could get through. And we claim that there are such indications. Much stronger are the more recent observations. This is different, so one mustn't get them confused. The link between the two is supermassive black holes. But now, this is the black holes in the very remote future, basically swallowed up in an entire cluster of galaxies, and the entire, pretty well, most of the mass in that cluster of galaxies gets swallowed by the black hole. Yeah. It sits around, it sits around, it sits around, and eventually gets evaporates away by hawking evaporation into, into photons. You see, I used to think it's a very boring phase of the universe when you've got nothing but black holes left. What's really boring is when they've all evaporated away. <laughs> and so I was worrying about this in unbelievably boring universe. And then I began to think, well, who's going to be bored by it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. That's the, Only the eternity is a pretty long time. That's right. It's an awful long time, especially at the end. But the main point here is that photons don't experience eternity because mm-hmm. they've got no, no mass. clocks. Yeah, there's they're no clocks. Right? Yeah, they don't have clocks. So mm-hmm. 
So the infinity is no big deal to a photon. It just zips through into the next eon. Mm -hmm. And that's the view I had and tried to make it into a theory. And these hawking points, which are the splodges, I would say, maybe a hawking splodge. But it's pretty circular, it would be. Mm. There would be spots in the sky about 10 times, sorry, eight times the diameter of the full moon. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't see them any bigger than that. That's mm. definitely a prediction of the theory. Occasionally a bit smaller, mm -hmm. but they would be slightly raised temperature. And I don't know, this is my suggestion, that if you had a planetarium, mm -hmm. you know, usually they use stars and planets and things like that, have the microwave background on your planetarium with enough detail yes. that I guess the Planck satellite would reveal, and you look it up at it, and you would see them. Mm -hmm. I, I'd like to know if that's mm -hmm. true. Well, we have a beach ball behind you, which will uh, yes, which can demonstrate yeah. look, higher resolution. Minute, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you need a bit more resolution, mm -hmm. yes, because right, I think the, the it's a little spot eight times the moon diameter would look like a mm -hmm. pinprick in that mm -hmm. model. So it needs to be a bit bigger than that. Mm -hmm. But the intensity overall is about fifteen times the average increased temperatures that you see. So the hmm. the new the normal variations in temperature are what ten to the minus five. And here you're looking at about ten to the minus four. Mm -hmm. A little bit a little bit more of an intensity. Mm -hmm. But probably not too obvious unless I don't know, I would expect you know, you look at that in the sky and you'd, you'd see them. Hmm. I'd like to know. I'd like to have a good, well done yeah. planetarium and I'd like to sit in it and see yeah. whether you can see well, them. Well, you and I both had the uh, pleasure at one point or another of speaking at the Hayden Planetarium. Mm. And when I spoke there, they were kind enough to project onto the dome the CMB map as revealed from, from the Planck satellite. So maybe oh, they we did can do that. They did do it. So That's maybe we can arrange it for your next visit to New York City. I'd love to see yeah. it. Yeah. It's, it's really enough. just a startling. It's almost induced vertigo in me, which was to be sent. <laughs> on this universe that I'd spent so much time studying. I would and love to see that. Yeah, it's quite beautiful. Well, you so. said nowhere to look for some of them, the five yeah. most prominent spots. Right. I suppose. But, and, but uh, it's intriguing to know whether they're whether you would really see them with mm -hmm. the naked eye or not. Well, I mean, naked eye with looking with at the microprocessing, yeah. Radiation. But so, that you were asking me what... Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what excites me most at the moment because that's ongoing and you mm -hmm. can really see does this mm -hmm. conform to... Right. Does the theory conform to the observations or not? The next thing I would say would be the state reduction experiments, mm -hmm. which are a little way off, but not that long. Hmm. Mm -hmm. There are experiments currently being done, which within the next three years, maybe we'll get an answer. Hmm. There are other experiments. The one I'm thinking of are the ones by Dirk Barmis, uh, mm -hmm. and this is his estimate, and he's been pretty accurate in, in predicting how long his things will be, so I think he may have an answer. Of course, the answer may go the wrong way as far as I'm concerned, but I hope mm -hmm. he will see mm -hmm. state reduction. That's a sort of deviation from standard quantum mechanics. Right. Of course, since it's a devi deviation, a lot of people will complain and say that's a bad experiment, it's due to decoherence and all that, so I have to, he'll have to persuade them <laughs> that it's a good experiment. But there are other experiments using Bose-Einstein condensates. I think they're probably the next maybe they, they will see effects. Mm -hmm. um, right. I have a colleague in Nottingham, Yvette Fuentes, who right. has proposals which I hope will be uh, performed experimentally. They, they haven't been set up yet. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is consciousness. Mm. The, here, there, you see, I think we're a lot longer. I think the we may see the effects in the, not biological experiments, but the just the 
the physical physics experiments are being done now, mm -hmm. whether you will see the quantum effects in microtubules or what, quite possibly. I think some general evidence for quantum coherence in biological systems might not be too long from now, but to see any direct evidence of connections with consciousness, I think is a long way off, mm. because it's really such a slippery subject. Right. To, to get hold of that in an experimental way may be really tricky, but maybe. maybe. Well, if Emperor's New Mind, which is still relevant now in its fifth decade after publication, <laughs> is any guide, uh, it's surely uh, to be expected that we'll have various new insights into these fascinating subjects that you've worked on. And I can't tell you how much we appreciate you here. Your graciousness is always in visiting us and sharing your ideas and, and opinions with us are really uh, very much appreciated. So thank you, Sir Roger, for your visit. And uh, we look forward to many years of continued success. Well, thank you very much. And I'm very excited to see how many how these experiments and the telescope in Chile and all that will come along. It really sounds like a very exciting project. Thank you very much. The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three.